Hi, welcome to Musings with Monse, a podcast where I have meaningful conversations with all kinds of artists. Musicians, poets, photographers, and other creatives share their honest stories, touching on the duality of being creative, the pure joy of making art, but also the particular struggles that come with it. And honey, there's no way that I'll ever know everything about you but oh how I love what I do and honey I love what I don't know too. Pico Ayer is a travel writer who has been to over 80 countries, the best-selling author of many books, and he has given TED Talks that have reached millions. But more importantly, he is one of the most genuine, generous, kind-hearted people I have ever come across. I had the honor of sitting down with him recently in Santa Barbara. It was truly one of the most special conversations of my life, and I'm so elated to be able to share with you. Pico talks about life without a cell phone, finding friends in books, losing everything he owned in a fire years ago, and how it brought him closer to the simple and beautiful life that he now has in Japan. We mused on the idea of home, how places can feel like people, and how we can be instinctively drawn to a place, as Pico calls them, our secret homes. My friend Ayapa always says to me, quality recognizes quality. And those words rung in my mind as Pico recounted his friendships with the Dalai Lama, Leonard Cohen, Elizabeth Gilbert, and Krista Tippett all incredibly soulful just like him. Pico has long been one of my favorite writers, but as I've gotten to know him, he is quickly becoming one of my favorite people as well. Since I've learned so much from him, it feels fitting to have him as part of the mentor series of this podcast. Pico is such a treasure, and I know you are going to love hearing his story and all the wisdom he shares. Here's my conversation with Pico Iyer. wanted to start off by asking you about the I just was thinking and pausing on the fact that you know it was so easy to coordinate this whole interview with you yes. and you don't even have a cell phone yes. you know we didn't have any complications of where to meet mm. or you know what time and and I just I was just thinking about that how you're I think the only person I know who doesn't have a cell phone yes and and how have you found that you can function in the world without it well of course I don't know any other right <laughs> so you know I'm like somebody who's always lived in some remote corner of the world and doesn't realize there's a New York City out there to to sparkle and stimulate uh but yeah you can tell I'm sort of in the, I think I was saying to you when we met before I'm in the 12th century moving backwards right so, uh, I'm just a victim of the habits I grew up with and so all my life, meeting somebody, we'll say, I'll see you at 3 o'clock in such and such a place, and we meet at 3 o'clock. So I'm not very adjustable. So were you to try to reach me at 2.50 to say you're running late, then you wouldn't be able to find me. But the funny thing is that you were actually a lot more responsive than people I know that have cell phones. <laughs> you know, it's very, you're very mm. um, accessible. You know, it's not that you're not able to be reached. You just have a boundaries around it, right? For myself. For yourself. Exactly, that's yeah. right. I think I'm scrupulous about responding to emails yeah. because that's the only way people like you and my other friends can find me. Right. Uh, and I think I'm fairly scrupulous about trying to get to places on time. But I think I was saying it to you when we met last week that I feel I've got so much data in my life already. 
I don't ha already I don't have enough time and space to make sense of it and put it in perspective. So I think if I had even more and I was even less attentive and more distracted, I'm not sure I'd be much of a joy to my friends and family. I'd just be you know running off in a thousand directions all at once. So um, I'm I'm keen to try and bring myself to a point as much as possible. Yes. I remember when I met you before, I was also saying how I think that's where reading plays such a huge part in teaching us patience and slowness and attention, yeah. and therefore giving us access to our deeper sides, yes. which we're so good at running away from now, and then we feel their absence, and we're crying out for something, but we don't know how to break this vicious cycle of being in such a hurry we can't see where, what a hurry we're in. So I suppose I've taken various of these eccentric measures to try to step back from the world to remember what I really care about. Well, that, that's so... That's that's living, right? Is to be able to do that because I <laughs> yeah. see I, what makes me sad right now. And this, I mean, I think I was um, in college when we started getting cell phones, you know. Mm -hmm. So I did live a lot of my life without that. Right. Um, but I now, you know, I look when we like, for example, if I'm waiting waiting in line to order a salad, or um, gosh, even at the airport or wherever, I stand and I just look around and everybody's on their cell phone, mm. you know, and to me it's just, it's, it's sort of sad because we're like losing that observation, right? And, and uh, Yes, and that's why I'm so happy you're looking around because yeah. I think that moment is an opportunity. Either we fill our heads with more or we empty our heads and look at everything that's around us. Yes. Uh, and I think, as you're saying, what's around us is often much more interesting than the latest tidbit from one's friend saying I'm on the 405 and there's traffic or the latest news updates that we're talking about and a discussion with Iran, which is yeah. the same one we've had for many years. So I love the fact of you're using that moment to look around because there's so many moments in the day like that. Uh, and it's really a choice we have mm -hmm. how we want to use them and whether we want to use them to open ourselves up or to close ourselves off. Yeah. yeah. And I, lo I, you know, I, I remember... Um, I don't think you told me this. I think I heard this or read it about you that you don't actually meditate in a traditional sense, mm, mm. but just like me, but you do meditate in other ways, you know, and I think mm -hmm. sort of the way you live your life is almost like a meditation. Oh, well, thank you. That's, that's a nice way of saying it. I mean, certainly it, my wife does meditate, but if she were here, she'd say, that's the last thing this guy needs. He spends his whole time sitting <laughs> silently and still at a desk. He needs to get you know, out more. So you're, I mean, I think that's the beauty of the writer's job which is that we're paid, or these days not always paid, but at least encouraged to spend hours of our day sitting still, finding the voice behind all the ch chat, the voices in which we chatter, and trying to see past our projections and illusions to something on the far side of that cl clutter in our heads. Yeah. So it's a great luxury, as you say, I've never formally meditated, and I'm too daunted ever to do that. Mm -hmm. But since I'm spending five days, uh, five hours a day at my desk, and then taking walks as an extension of my desk, it, I hope it might bring some of the same kinds of clarity and calm. I think about that a lot because a lot of people, I have a very busy mind, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm always trying to find ways to quiet it. But yes. I find that, you know, I, I have a hard time sitting still and meditating, but I have I love going out and walking and walking and walking. And mm. that, to me, that feels like a meditation. Sure, you know? exactly. So. I mean, I think any writer, including myself, will tell you that's when the real writing gets done. Because mm. when you're yes. at your desk, you're, you're con concentrating on the data and you can do all the micro stuff. But in terms of thinking outside the envelope, coming up with radical ideas, restructuring a whole piece, you can only do that when you're not, uh, when you're seeing the wood for the trees. And that's when you're, right. When you're not distracted by the 
micro right material. absolutely um, as when ideas come to me the most you yes, know when i'm walking oh yes, and yes yes yeah. or taking a shower yes or playing yes. ping pong or whatever it might be no exactly no yeah. i think those are the creative moments in our lives um, you know and this is a little bit out of order how i normally do the podcast but i would love to know you are a writer and that's mm-hmm. something that you pour yourself into is there something else that you can really get lost in oh what a nice question um i watch movies a lot because they speak to a different you know, part of me than yeah. the, the books do. And so since I'm spending all my day with words, I like in the evening turning to images. Um, I'm a fanatic about every kind of professional sports. I used to cover the Olympics. And I, in the Olympics I cover, including in Barcelona, one of your many homes, yes. I would get to cover all 26 of the sports on offer. So that was a feast. Um, so, yeah, there are lots of things, uh, too many things. Uh, that I'm interested in. I was really happy when you said busy mind because I was telling some friends recently that my mind is like a Bollywood stage set in hyperdrive, <laughs> full of singing and dancing, somersaulting, catawallings. Like yes. <laughs> that's why reading and writing are such a blessing, really, yes. as a way to, to um, clarify. Yes, absolutely. That, that madness. Well, what this is? I'm going to start with a sort of big question here, but okay. I love to dive in this way. Please. So, you know, you professionally, you are a very well-known writer. You've written many books. You've given a number of TED talks that are have been viewed by millions. Write for publications like the New York Times, among many others. Um, but I would love to know, besides everything that you do, who are you? Like, what? How would you describe who you are and how you move through the world? Hmm. What a beautiful question. Uh, Mm, I would say solitary, dangerously self-contained. <laughs> um, hmm. I was at an event recently and somebody said, describe yourself in seven words. And I wish I could remember what those seven were because that would be the perfect answer uh, to, to this question. But I think I was formed in two ways. One was by being an only child yeah. and actually going to school 6,000 miles from the nearest relative because my parents were in California and my other family was in India and I was alone at school in England. So that very much formed and deformed me. And then probably I was also formed by going to school over the um, North Pole and flying back and forth um, six times a year from the age of nine. And so that made me very comfortable in in between places. And um, I suppose as an only child, fairly self-sufficient, good at adapting to places, extremely bad at laying down roots. In my 60s, I've never owned a piece of property. I I live on a tourist visa. Until recently, I'd never voted. So I'm really bad at all the settled domestic stuff of life. But uh, I'm relatively good at being a kind of mote of dust (laughs) flying around the world. So that's probably... um, And so I probably started to travel and even much more than that to write because they suited the peculiarities of my temperament. Um, I think the biggest challenge for a writer is spending most of your life alone in your own head. And since I was doing that anyway, uh, it seemed a a natural uh, thing to fall into. And since I spent eight years of my life studying nothing but literature, not a single hour of history or social science or science or languages or anything, very, very narrow education. So really all I learned to do as a kid was read and write. And given that I knew nothing other than to read and write and that I liked being alone, (laughs) my career choices were extremely narrow, but writing was the one that... It just called you right there. Absolutely. Oh, yes, by default. By default, No no options, yeah. (laughs) 
Well, you know, one thing that it seems, I know we don't have known each other very long, but it seems to me you, you feel like a very intuitive person. Mm. And I wondered if that is something that you've really cultivated over the years or something that maybe just came to you because you've been so mobile and mm. have, it sort of almost forces you to be intuitive, I think, you know, mm-hmm. being sort of a global um, citizens and moving all over the world and, and being adaptable to different places. Yeah. Sort of, I, I don't know if that's true, but being someone who also has moved around a lot. Yes. Um, I, I don't know. I think that's part of it. I think it is very true. No, yeah. I think that's a great observation. And you're right. I think a traveler is naturally an, an observer, an outsider. Everything is interesting to a traveler. And that's why I sort of have enjoyed the fact that there's no place I can take for granted. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm in England where I grew up, it's a place I've barely been for 40 years. If I'm in India where my blood comes from, it's a completely foreign place. If I'm in California where I've been officially resident for more than 50 years, it's more foreign than when I arrived. Right. And so too with North Korea or Easter Island or um, the streets of Los Angeles. If I'm walking down them, everything is interesting to me because I can't feel I belong there. Yeah. So uh, I think you're, you're absolutely right that it, it does go with that sort of um, gypsy temperament. And the right. challenge is if you're a foreigner everywhere, you have to ask where you're responsible to where you're accountable those kind of things yeah. but um yes i think i i think there's many advantages to being a foreigner yeah well and, and speaking of on the topic of intuition um i loved when I, I i again i can't remember if i read it or i heard it on an interview that you mm. did but the moment how you describe how you were only in japan on a 24-hour layover yes and that's and you decided yes. when you just spent the day there yes. that you're like, I want to move here. You yes. felt it in your bones. Yes. And I'm I'm so interested to unpack that a little bit because yes. I that seems completely logical to me. Like something I would do if I just went to a place and I feel that this is home. Yes. And again, you know, not neither of us have really had one place as a home, right? right? And right. I've always felt sort of like my identity is in different places a little bit like sure. a little bit in Spain a little bit here and I feel half Spanish in some ways and American mm. others and different parts of the states and different parts of Spain that whole thing and um, I, I, I think maybe because of that I can very easily tell when I'm in a place like I sort of the soul of the place is very palpable to me mm. and how some places I can just visit briefly and it feels so like the sky feels different you know the mm. whole everything feels like rich and 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 um I don't know, like belonging, like mm. safe and all these good feelings. And another place can be, you know, very visually beautiful, but I feel very disconnected, yes. you know, and I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And if you could maybe, for people who don't know that story, um, talk a little bit about how you landed in Japan and how it now feels like home. Yes. Um, I will say places always feel like people to me. Yeah. And just the way you will meet a stranger in a crowded room and you feel, I know that person. I know that person better than I know my friends and family. As you were saying, I think we have that same relation with uh, with places. And you're right, that's much more a matter of intuition and observation. It's a very different thing. So I could give you lots of reasons why I chose to live in Japan, but I wouldn't believe the explanations. Because, as you said, I think it lies on the far side of explanation and one can't reduce it in any logical or rational way. But yes, I was working in New York City uh, in a 25th floor office in Midtown, and uh, I was in Hong Kong on business, and I was flying back to New York City on Japan Airlines, and all I wanted to do, of course, was to be back at home and talking to my friends about my latest adventure and safely in the space that I knew. 
But because I was flying on Japan Airlines, I had this 20-hour unwanted layover at Narita Airport near Tokyo. And uh, I took the shuttle bus to the airport hotel and went to sleep and woke up, and I still had six hours left or five hours left before my flight. And I thought, what am I going to do? Um, how can I, so to speak, kill the time? And, and I'll probably never be in Japan again. And I saw a little sign in the lobby offering a free shuttle bus into the town of Narita. And I thought, well, airport towns are not known as centers of great <laughs> cultural fascination and beauty, but what else am I going to do? So I took this shuttle bus in, and after about 20 minutes, it, it led me through these crowded, busy streets with high concrete buildings and dropped me off near a bridge. And I crossed the bridge, and suddenly I was in this much older and more intimate area of very narrow streets. All the buildings were wooden. Uh, there were shoes laid out perfectly at each entrance, so flashes of gold and orange uh, the early fall through the back windows of mostly restaurants and tea houses. Nobody there. It's absolutely silent. And I followed this riddle of lanes to a great white purple courtyard, uh, at the end of which was a wooden meditation hall. And in my innocence or ignorance, I didn't realize that this place called Narita Temple is one of the great pilgrimage spots of Japan. People will walk 46 miles from central Tokyo to be there, but I just stumbled uh, into it off the, the shuttle bus. So I went into the meditation hall, the first time I'd been in such a place, and then I went outside and I followed a line of gravestones to this temple garden. It was a late October day, which means in Japan, brilliant blue skies, and the first pinch of coming cold and approaching darkness in the winter. And there were these little kindergartners in pink and blue caps scattering across the lawn, and I think they were collecting the first um, autumn leaves on the grass. And just as you were saying, as I looked there, I thought, I know this place. I know it better than I know the street I grew up on in England, better than I know my apartment back in New York. And if I don't come back here, something in me will always be unresolved. And I'll feel, as Thoreau said, that I died never having really lived. So this is a, a call that I can't turn away from. And as you said, therefore, by the time I boarded my flight, one o'clock that afternoon, I decided to move to Japan on the basis of that one unwanted morning. And I think the reason sometimes I reflect on that story is that we all have these secret homes. Yes. Um, and it seems often to inhere in older cultures, Europe, China, India, Mexico, Egypt, certain of these places, Greece, call people again and again. And uh, I'm, as you were saying before, I'm not a great <laughs> lover or user of technology, but I'm really grateful for technology, which allows us, you and me, to find our secret homes now and then to visit them. And in my case, actually, to live in my secret home and thanks to email and Skype, still be in contact with my friends and colleagues on this side of the world, but live in the place that makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the great luxuries in life that uh, Japan, it seems, was always waiting for me, but I might never have found it had it not been for... Circumstance, And I think at this point in life, I've noticed that all the big moments in my life come absolutely without my planning. You know, when yes, I was... Yes, of course, right? Of course. <laughs> That's how it works. When I was in my 20s, I spent so long agonizing. You know, should I do this career or that yeah. career? Should I marry her or not marry her? What should I do? And all of that's immaterial because all kinds of interventions come, benign and not so benign, and turn one's life around in a second, like that moment. Um, and and I could never have planned it. And there's nothing to me, like where you feel more alive in the, than, the, than in those moments when mm -hmm. you suddenly get that 
jolts and rush that you know something is yes, right in your yes, body. Like you feel yes, it, you know, yes, and yes. whether it's a relationship or a yes, place yes. or so that's so that's so beautiful to hear that you were there and just you knew it. and you, like all these years later you can still describe that day so vividly. That's right. That was um thirty six years ago this yeah. October. And jolt is the perfect word and, and, and rush and absolutely that um I only trust those things I can't explain. Yeah. Uh, and as you say, they're instantaneous. Yeah. And they, they do come from something close to the intuition and not from the analytical mind, for sure. I think that's why I've always been the kind of person that I just don't believe in settling in life. Because mm. I always know that the, the thing, is all, there's always something worth waiting for, you yeah. know? And, yes. and like for you, like that Japan moment where you were there, you just knew, like, this is where I want to be. And That's true. Though, of course, <laughs> once I found that... I stopped traveling, essentially. Right. So I'd been 32 years in Japan and would gladly spend the rest of my life there because as soon as I had that moment, I knew that's the place. And yeah. I remember that when I was in my life in New York City, which was quite a comfortable, exciting life, I would think, oh, what would it be like to live in Bangkok or to be in Kyoto or to be in Tangier or somewhere? And as soon as I arrived in Japan that day, I never thought about anywhere else. I thought, oh, oh the, the end of end of issue it's it's settled this might be too personal a question you can tell me i'm if sure it is, it's not but no. did you feel that way when you met your wife too did you have that similar uh not so instantaneous but equally mysterious because so um after i had that moment in narita it took me three years to extricate myself from my job but finally i did wow. and uh in 1987 when i was 29 i decided to go and live in japan for a year in a temple because it was really that temple that summoned me and something about the emptiness and clarity of that aesthetic I think, that really told inside me like a bell. Mm. So I went to Japan and found this backstreet beautiful temple on what turned out to be the most exquisite uh, wind, wooden lane in, along the eastern hills of Kyoto with a view of spending a year there. I lasted a week, <laughs> which is long enough to see. It was very similar to my English boarding schools. But my third week in Kyoto, um, uh, a friend I'd met by chance from here in Santa Barbara in Japan took me to a temple ceremony, and there were just a handful of us in the room. I sat down next to a young woman, and um, yeah, she's my wife, and we've been together 32 years. So, again, totally senseless yeah. in that sense. Nothing leading up to it came out of nowhere. My third week in Japan. And now, of course... I also think retrospectively, somehow it could only have been in Japan that yeah. uh, that this would happen. Because I'm, as I was saying a minute ago, in answer to your good question about who I am, I'm a very hermetic kind of monastic type. So I was pretty sure I'd be in a monastery or just in my little writer's cave for wow. life. No, I mean, the opposite of any thought of marriage or settling down in that yeah. sense. But um, yeah, Japan had other ideas. <laughs> Look at that. So, it all yes. came there too. And it's, it's funny too how you, sometimes you put yourself, you, you, when you follow whatever the strong pull is, all the other things in your life yes. really fall into place in a certain Wonderfully way. Wonderfully said. Right? Yes, no, you're exactly. Uh, that's right. Ab absolutely. And then now, 32 years on, actually, the tiny two room flat that my wife and I share is very close to the monastery that I imagined when I left New York City. I mean, when we lead a very monastic life and not having a cell phone is just the beginning of it I mean I could make a long list of all the things we don't have which makes life so luxurious no car no bicycle no TV I can understand no I media. fantasize about that all the time yes. really about having just that super simple life I think that's why I'm so drawn to traveling and moving around so much yes. I like having not a lot that's holding me 
bear down. You know, there's I not agree. a lot of things. And Absolutely. I think, uh, yes, I once wrote a, or gave a talk called Why We Travel, and a lot of it was about how we sort of become monastic on the road, because we're living out of a suitcase, we're yes. very light on the ground, we're open to everything, in a way that we aren't, I think, the rest of our lives. Uh, and we're open to transformation. I mean, here, as we're sitting in Santa Barbara, if I walk down the street now and a homeless person came up to me, I'd say, I'm really sorry, I can't help you, I have to go and meet Monsi, because we're due, she's waiting for me at three o'clock. If I'm walking down the street in Bombay or Port-au-Prince on holiday or as a traveler, somebody comes up with a hand extended and I pay all my attention, mm -hmm. I bring myself entirely to her, because yeah. I'm not going somewhere and I'm not cocooned or coffined inside my own schedule. Yeah. Uh, but yes, no, I love the way that, that travel reduces us to essentials, even linguistically. I love the fact of not being able to speak and therefore being forced to listen or communicate without words. Well, did I hear as well that you and your wife don't, like she, yes. doesn't flu she does not speak fluent English <laughs> and you don't speak fluent Japanese, so you, I think that's, that's right. so beautiful. It's, that just goes to show how much you can communicate without speaking fully in, your lang in the language. You yes, know? you're absolutely right. So she speaks very limited English, I'm more limited Japanese, and in 32 years, she's never been good enough at English to teach me Japanese, nor I good enough <laughs> at Japanese to teach her English. So we remained in the same... But I was explaining this to somebody recently, and she said that she had read, and then I checked it, and it seems to be true, 7% of communication comes with words. Wow. Only 7 and especially in Japan, it might be 3%, because I think the Japanese, more than anybody I know, essentially speak silence, and they speak nonverbal yeah. communication. That doesn't surprise me to hear that, that tidbit, you know? That's, yes. That's, that sounds yes. about right. And I think, you know, words get in the way. Words yeah. are weapons, they're distractions, they're, they're smoke screens. Uh, and uh, when I talk to my wife, I'm really concentrating on getting a meaning across from yeah. myself to her and vice versa. And... Um, we attend to each other more closely than if we had the the, um, the froth of words between us. Yes. So, yes, it's, I think it's very clarifying. And I've yes. always loved that aspect of traveling, that when I'm speaking a foreign yeah. language badly or English very simply to a non-native speaker, I'm, I'm purified. I'm a much simpler, clearer version of myself. Was there something similar that you learned? I know you, have, you had a unique friendship with Leonard Cohen. Mm. And I remember reading something about along those lines, too, that you had a unique friendship and that there wasn't a lot of speaking. Is that right? Yes. So you really, you know more about my life than I do. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, so I first met him when he was living as a monk in a Zen temple for five and a half years, just scrubbing floors and uh, shoveling snow um, and driving his 88-year-old Japanese friend to the doctor. And Leonard Cohen was the most articulate writer I've ever met. I mean, really, everyone knows he's spellbinding with words, mm -hmm. not just in his songs and his poems, but as a presence. He yeah. spoke in this high, exalted diction that came out of the Old Testament, though he always knew what was going down on Hollywood Boulevard, too. I mean, he, that was really his, his, his ace uh, that he, he straddled the sacred and profane. Uh, and I, I think, yes, you might have heard me speak about how one time I went to his house for lunch and just he, he spoke in this hypnotic, breathtaking way. He was a professional hypnotist as a kid and you could feel that, that charisma in him uh, about everything under the sun, writers and his monastic discipline and the, the, the public scene. And then suddenly he took up two uh, folding chairs and took them out to the small garden of this very simple house in a really beat-up part of Los Angeles. So, and he set them down, looking out on this quiet residential street in this small um, uh, bed of flowers. And um, 
then silence. And he didn't say anything. And I waited. Nothing. More nothing. More nothing. And finally, I thought, well, this is maybe a gentle hint. So I said, you must be, you know, you must have things to do. I should leave you. And he looked at me so beseechingly and said, no, please don't go. And I realized that, especially through his monastic training, he'd learned that the deepest communion comes in silence and that words push us apart yeah. and it's silence that brings us together. And I was so touched that he would trust me with his silence mm -hmm. and realize, you know, chit-chat is for strangers, but with somebody yeah. who's not a stranger, you can just, you know, take in the world. I love that. I think it's, um, it sort of speaks to something I think about a lot lately is how much I, I just dislike small talk, you know? And mm. I just, I love the idea of just speaking when you have something you really want to say or mm. really want to hear and ask mm. the question, you know? Mm. Um, and allowing for the space in between, you know? Yes. And I think I think the deepest friendships do allow for that. Absolutely, you know? yes. So the space in between is where everything happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, exactly. And so I just wrote this book, Autumn Light, and I spent yes, 16 years making it very silent essentially yeah. it's a book about absence and silence and i wanted the spaces in between to speak much more uh than than the words themselves um i was going to say something else about that but it will it will come back to me but i loved what you said about the the spaces in between yes yeah. i'll come back i think will. yeah i think what, it's what were you saying a minute ago yeah. before you said the spaces in between um, my yes my trigger let's see i was talking about um the friendships and having space in between, yes, and I said yes, yes. that that I don't like small talk. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. That that it, it did <laughs> trigger. It, it, okay. worked, it worked. Uh, and I, before I, and I was also thinking exactly as you say, a friend is somebody with. Sometimes it's a person with whom you can say everything, yeah. but I think it's more often the person with whom you don't have to say a thing. Yeah. Uh, you, when I meet my oldest friends, who are probably from high school, they don't need any explanation. They don't need an update on my life. None of that is, is yes. has bears any relation to whatever we share, and I the same with them. Um, and at some level, we, we're always the same person, whatever has been taking place in our lives. But yes, when you're saying about small talk... Um, I was thinking, I, I, I prefer big talk, as yes. well, which <laughs> yes. is to say reading. And you know, yes. sometimes my friends will say to me, aren't you lonely uh, living in Japan, speaking very limited Japanese in a very boring suburb in the middle of nowhere? And I know almost nobody except my wife and my friends I play ping pong with. But um, every, every day I go out onto our little terrace and I have this long conversation with Emily Dickinson or Virginia Woolf or Melville and what a rich conversation and as you were saying no small talk there exactly but they're, they're sharing the deepest parts of their yes. hearts parts that are mysterious even to themselves things that their questions their doubts their terrors yeah. uh, and then I of course as a reader try to reciprocate in some ways um, and I can't think of a richer exchange that I could have in the day than that absolutely that's why I've always been so drawn to books and to reading and I yes. think I always love to, to say this because it's so true, you know, when, if you're feeling alone or depressed or, you know, just, and you don't feel like you have a person to talk to, you can always find it in a book, the comfort yes. and, a, and a friend, you know, I yes. really do think books are like friends. I agree. And they're not going to turn their back on you and they're not going <laughs> to run away and they're not going to say, sorry, I have to take this right. I mean, because I, right. I really, it goes back to what we were talking about, which is the challenge now is. A lot of my friends feel overwhelmed and they're yeah. very busy. And if I were feeling, as you said, lonely at a, at a loss and I call them up, understandably, they would be uh, on their machines or they would have something to do. 
But um, Emily Dickinson's always uh, yes. <laughs> ready to talk, as, as is Henry David Thoreau, as is Zadie Smith yes. uh, in, in, in her written work. And so, exactly. And, and then, um, you ha they have all the time in the world for you. Yeah. And you can talk to them for two hours and three hours, or however long it takes. And I think as soon as you... I mean, you used this beautiful phrase a few minutes ago, lose yourself, because yeah. what we do is lose ourselves in a book. And when we lose ourselves in a book, we shed that anxiety, that loneliness, that yes. depression, we're literally taken into another world. And our problems, which seemed so all-consuming 20 minutes ago, are washed away in the presence of something much, much bigger and, and, and probably more real. Yeah. And it's not just that we're distracting ourselves from it, where yeah. we've been taken Engaging into... Engaging in it. It's almost the yes. opposite of that, isn't it? Well, in wonderfully a way. said. Yes, I think it is. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, that's why, I, as soon as I met you, I thought, well, there's going to be su such a rich kinship here because we're both involved in the work of, of reading yes and and, and, and that's read that means intimacy yeah. listening stretching the attention span and and the richest conversations anyone could have yeah. and I, you know as i was saying a minute ago i love movies i love watching any kind of sports on tv there's so many terrific diversions in the world and what we're doing right now is one of those things yeah. that wasn't available 15 years ago and is a great way that you and I can talk to people that we've never met. Right. So it's a great means to an interesting end, but I still haven't found anything quite to compare with books as yeah. a way to... Uh, yes, yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I get that. I mean, you read a lot. I do your, read a lot. For your job. Yeah. Uh, well, you yeah. would anyway, but yeah. you're in a happy position... You get to pretend it's work. You know, my problem is, though, is that I always, um, I'm always reading, like, five books at the same time. I didn't used uh -huh. to do that, and uh -huh. now I, I do because I get so many books. And it's your job. Exactly, yes. exactly. So That's um, a challenge. It is, yes. and I don't, I, don't, I don't like that because I'm not giving my full attention to something, yes. you know? So yes, yes. There's just, I mean, it's a nice problem to have, but I have so many books yes. all over, the, you know, all the yes. time. So. Reading <laughs> for a reason in that way is never going to be the same no, as just picking no. up a book. And, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. But, um, you know, so you mentioned Zadie Smith, and I, I think you've interviewed her, is that right? I did, yeah. yes. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. You have done, a, you've been interviewed a lot, but you've also interviewed yourself, including our, our friend Krista Tippett, yes. <laughs> who's just incredible. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, of all the years, you know, interviewing all these wonderful people, is there something that you've learned that from those conversations in that format that you can take into your own life and conversations? Hmm... Well, I suppose interviewing, and you're clearly doing a lot of it also, is, is an exercise in listening. And it's a, a, about trying to get to that intimate place, and that's what Krista Tippett does so supremely, oh. which is why all of us feel like we're her friends, just listening to her. Absolutely. Um, you, wherever you happen to be, I in my little apartment on long autumn nights in Japan, but there she is with introducing a new friend to me on her on her show um, and I realize I, I know I think I said this to you when I when I bumped into you last week but I was thinking of how I understand writing differently as a result of interviewing mm -hmm. and I noticed that with the best interviewers the person is talking to the audience but they're really talking to themselves mm -hmm. the same way and I realized that's what a writer needs to do to talk to herself in so rich and deep and piercing a way that it translates to yes. the world. And every writer knows the more personal you get, the more universal it becomes. Exactly. But it's a big challenge to go right into those thorny, treacherous parts of yes. oneself that one would rather turn away from often. Uh, so, yes, I have 
only re I have this series um, here in Santa Barbara where I get to interview four people a year. So it's great fun to think of who they are and to think of who is going to rise to the invitation of that intimacy. So with, Chris, with Krista, um, that was super exciting because, uh, as I was saying, I'd listened I listened to her show. It's the only radio show almost really that I listened to in Japan. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I got to talk to her on her show and I instantly felt as if I was talking to my best friend, though I'd never met her before. She was 2,000 miles away. And then when she came here to Santa Barbara and I interviewed her on stage, it was, I think, not such a good interview because I was too excited. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you said it was wonderful. Oh, well, that's nice But I'm sure you. you felt, I understand that feeling. It was uh, somehow, yeah. and I was uh, relatively new to it. And I remember that day in particular, I had so cluttered my mind with all kinds of uh, appropriate or inappropriate quotations and pieces <laughs> of knowledge that poor Krista got sort of bombarded and I, I didn't draw her out in quite the way I would have liked to though I am going to be talking to her on stage in San Francisco next year I'll be so there I'm going to come back for it oh that's nice May <laughs> yes. 18th of 2020 I'll be there. and um, this time I'm, I'm going to be able to ask all the questions I should have asked uh, well how beautiful time. to get another chance to a wonderful that. yes to ask yes. To, to talk to the master interviewer but I've, I mean as I prepare for these interviews it's, it's strikingly similar to, to reading of course because in many cases, I'm talking to writers, and um, so the preparation takes a form of reading and reading and reading their books again and again and again, but the, really that's listening and trying to hear the subtext and what is George Sanders really writing about as he constructs these elaborate alternative universes in book after book, or if I get one hour with my heroine, Zadie Smith, what am I going to ask her? Because I could ask her about literature, about race, about America versus England, about E.M. Forster, you name it. And um, that's a lovely but demanding challenge uh, to, to have. So, um, but no, it's, it, I, you know, having interviewed so many people yourself and a lot of musicians, yeah. what, a, what a fun challenge it is. It is. Um, and I think I want to touch on something you mentioned, you, you touched on just a little bit ago, was the um, art and fruit. And I and, and true mm. because I remember you talking about um, last time we were talking about coming uh, every writer really kind of um, faces that fork in the road. Of, am, I gonna, am I going yes, to make this yes, honest and truthful yes, or yes, popular? Yeah, and I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit because it's such a important notion to sort of meditate on. It is, and it's an insoluble conundrum. I mean, few people resolve it. That so most of the writers that you and I cherish do, and that's why we. We cherish them. Um, but yes, I mean, that's actually the answer to uh, your previous question, because when I was thinking about the people um, I was interviewing, I was thinking that all of them are seasoned performers, mm. but what I want from them is less a performance and more a confessional. And not that I'm trying to get them to di disclose their secrets, but I, w I want that sense of whispered intimacy, and I want them to speak to the audience as if the audience was a trusted friend, which is what they do as writers. Uh, to an extraordinary um, degree. And I'm thinking of this year, I had the rare privilege of talking to George Sanders and last year, Sadie Smith. And in both those cases, there were writers I hugely admired for such a long time. And they were beyond every expectation in terms of, I think in the case of both of them, openness and humility. And either of them could command an audience in any way that they want. But... I think they see every encounter as an invitation 
to learn something and to go, go somewhere they haven't been before and not to deliver the same stories or, or conclusions that they've come to already, but um, a real inquiry and, um, and being with each of them on, on stage in front of 700 or 900 people for 90 minutes really showed me what I was responding to in, in their writing, which is there's nothing fake. Mm. And there's nothing, it's really a private endeavor more than a public one. And to speak to your question, every writer knows that this is how you're going to speak to even more readers and this is how you're going to speak truthfully. And every writer is trying to speak truthfully in a way that reaches every reader. And when you think of, let's say, Alice Munro or Kazuo Ishiguro, Elizabeth Strout or Colin Toybean, so many, and this is such a golden age of literature, um, they're, they're exploring unblinkingly, unflinchingly their deepest yeah. concerns, but somehow in a framework that every one of us can relate to. And that's what we all try to do, but it's, in my case, almost impossible. Really? I think so. I'm aware of books that feel more public to me, which I know people are going to respond to, and uh, books that feel more private, which I feel are much, much richer, yeah. but are, are going to require a real leap. And I think it yeah. speaks to what we were talking about a little bit ago about attention span. Because I've been, so I've been writing books now for more than 30 years, and in that time, the attention span has shrunk a lot, the reader, of the human being. We've all got, you know, we've all got the Library of Alexandria times a thousand in the palm of our hands. Yeah. And, it seems as if we have more and more stuff to do in our lives. Though actually, uh, the survey found that typical American worked more hours in the 1960s than now, but we feel as if we're working more. So we're, we're all overburdened. Right, because we have so much going on and the busyness. And, all, yes, yeah. busyness. All, that's yeah. right. We have the illusion of busyness all the time. Right. And we keep thinking or saying, we, I don't have time for that, which is a loss because the kind of things we don't have time for are our kids, our friends, our reading, our souls. Yes. Um, but, so I have noticed that, you know, books are, are more marginal in the culture than when I began publishing in 1988 uh, because they're not giving instant gratification and because they're asking much more of us than the TV or YouTube or, yeah. uh, or, or texting or Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, but that's besides, you know, they're the quiet person in the corner asking the difficult question yeah. while other people are singing and dancing in front of us. So it's our opportunity to listen beyond all the singing and dancing to the person who really wants to engage us at a, yeah. at, a, um, at a deep level. And I think both Zadie Smith and George Sanders, among the many people I've talked to, but those are the first two examples that come to my mind, I noticed so many people in the audience said they were so different from what they imagined, huh. which is a way of saying that they, they are, in fact, the rich, deep, surprising, unexpected people that... Right, they, that right. feast on that many people are surprised Lady Smith was so funny yeah. because she's she's so brilliant she's so serious she can write in a myriad different tones you can write on Jay-Z one minute and, and George Eliot the next and she's few incredible. people have that range um, and George Sanders was talking about why he deliberately makes his um, 
book's very difficult because he doesn't want to talk down to the reader and he doesn't want to talk to her easiest part mm -hmm. and he doesn't want the compassion that was really driving all his work to be too easy or sentimental. Mm -hmm. He wants it to be as difficult as it is in the world mm -hmm. and the real world doesn't offer easy answers or shortcuts. Uh, so he will work 14 years on a single short story um, wow. to, try and get, to try and teach us empathy but um, not automatically or not as if it were a self-help book. Right. And he, he, gave, he shared this wonderful line, the other is just us on another day. Uh, and I that. think all his writing is about cutting through those borders in our head, yeah. whereby we assume I'm so-and-so and that person is different from me. Um, and in his essay, The Brain Dead Megaphone, from more than 14 years ago, he has this beautiful, passionate um, defense, really, of reading and mm -hmm. who we would be without reading which is, you know, the loudest is the best. and um. Well, you've, I think you've talked about that with Krista, or maybe I'm just making that up. Um, but you I remember know. it better than I, I do. <laughs> but, I, you know, um, one of the things that I love about Krista's program on Bean is that she brings people on a lot of the time that are not very known and that yes. have the softer voices, you know, yes. and brings them yes. up there. Yes, and allows them to be soft and then yes. encourages yes. them to be intimate Yes, and, and gives us a sense that, whispering to a friend is a much deeper and realer communication, as you said a minute ago, yeah. than shouting from yes. the pulpit. Yes, yes. and those yes, are, right. oh, there's so much beauty in that quiet, right? You know? Yes, and well I, said. I, um, I don't know, I think that's what, just like you were just speaking about when you met Krista, you know, how, how it, it felt like you've already known her and, yes. and, and thought of her as a friend before you met her, and I felt similarly, and I also, by the way, embarrassed myself by talking way too much when I was with her in her presence. I was just couldn't believe I was with Krista Tippett because she's such a um, hero of mine. Yes, you know? yes. Um, but she was so genuine and yes. so kind. Yes. And it was so obvious to me that she really does not care at all about the celebrity. Yes. Or, and I, that's so refreshing for, for me, yes. who I've worked with a lot of very yes. prominent people. And, yes. known, and it's it's kind of rare that you see that, yes. like genuinely. Yes. You know, I, I know you're similar. To, you're like that too. But it's just so nice to see that she has this program where she's really bringing people on that are not... That you know the most known people. Yes. But she finds these gems, you know. Yes. No, as you were talking, I was thinking of Elizabeth Gilbert. Who's, oh. Who's almost shockingly. Uh, She's another hero. And, oh, <laughs> rightly so. So I mean, so I was just teaching this little class in New Jersey this last couple of months. Only sixteen kids, many of them in their teens. And, of course, Elizabeth Gilbert is one of the most in-demand people in the world. And I met her a couple of times, and she's been very kind to me. So I said, would you have any interest in coming to my class? She dropped everything. You know, quite a few other people said they were, and they never showed up. <laughs> but there she was on a rainy afternoon in New Jersey when she has a million things that she could be doing, including writing the books that enchant us all, um, just to come to speak to 16 young writers. I was so moved, and she's, uh, she, was, I, she visited Santa Barbara, too, for this series, and I remember there was a fancy um, uh, reception on the beach, and it was mostly, literally, billionaires and movie stars there. Uh, and there was a film producer um, there, a film producer's wife there, who met everybody under the sun. And the next day, she wrote to me, and she said, Meeting Elizabeth Gilbert was the first time I've met a celebrity who didn't seem to know or care she was a celebrity. And wow, it was yeah. her presence that was the teaching, she said, so beautifully. And yeah. when you were talking about 
Krista, I was remembering, because I'll never forget it. Um, it was four years ago, and I woke up um, that morning in Orange County, and I had to fly to San Francisco for a conference that morning. And I was navigating the streets of Los Angeles, which is, you know, having been there this morning and yes. no fun, and the traffic. And I was in this area called Culver City, which is all mini malls and anonymous warehouses. And it really felt something like the inferno. And I was completely lost. I don't have GPS, of course, in my broken down 1995 Toyota Tesla. I don't have anything. So I was fumbling with my maps. And most of all, I was thinking, how am I possibly going to get from this radio station to Los Angeles Airport to make my flight after? This is anything I was thinking about, because I had an 11 a.m. flight or something, and this is 9 a.m. And I finally made it to this studio, NPR West, which is where I was meant to be. And only thinking about how will I make it to LAX afterwards, I went into this little <laughs> cubby hole, and I put on um, headphones, and suddenly this voice was talking to me, mm. which is Krista Tippett yes. in Minneapolis. And as I said, it was the kindest, most genuine, most searching voice. And although my mind was in a thousand places, mm. three minutes earlier, it's within crazy. minutes, I thought, well, this is a close friend. That wow. who, who, for one thing, like you, she prepares so deeply that instantly she knows more about me than I do and is addressing things mm. at a very, very profound level. Um, and then just... Uh, and you can tell that the search is completely authentic. Right, right. And, and, it's, and the conversation inquiry, she wants to, to entertain doubt and think more about the things that she, that she hasn't thought enough about. That's she's, it. She's probing, it's genuine. she's searching, yes. And then, and then as, as you were saying a minute ago, exact, I had the same experience. Such a wonderful talk with her, and then it was one year later I met her, and she was everything I expected times a thousand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's the thing. Just like you said, you know, when it's one thing to research the person you're interviewing. Anyone can do that, right? Yes. But But she is, is coming from like this genuine curiosity. Yes. That she, yes. you know, I could feel that she has a real interest in getting the answers to those questions. Yes. It's or not deeper just, questions. Or deeper even. questions, yes. 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 It's yes. not that she's just, you know, going, running through the... That's right. The, doing a job. And actually, know? that's, I think that's part of the answer to your earlier question. So one thing I've learned when I interview people, I will, I will spend maybe six weeks um, preparing for the interview, wow. although it's only 90 yeah. minutes. So that involves reading all their books if they're writers, but it involves listening to all their interviews and, and listening for the question they haven't been asked. And, I, yes, and, and listening yes. for, and most people, you know, I travel with the Dalai Lama every year. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I've been talking to him for 44 years, and I know every day of the Dalai Lama's life, he's, he's asked exactly the same question. Everywhere he goes. And you see that. This, oh, I see yeah, it. Yeah, I yeah. witness it. <laughs> um, my heart goes out to him. And I can tell how excited he is when there's a fresh question coming yeah. along. So I know the set questions. I know some of the set answers. I'm trying to go to places that those people Unexplored. haven't been before. Because yeah. that's the best gift you can share with them. And then you're going to startle them into coming up with things yeah. that they didn't know they thought or knew before. That's the um, most beautiful moment, too, is when you, yes. you, you, you're you suddenly saying something out loud that you have never really like pondered before or thought about it, you, or you know a new truth, right? <laughs> yes, that's a great gift of friendship. That's yeah. what we want to offer to yes, friends. And yes. I think in, in any podcast or interview format, that's the best thing um, we can offer to somebody else. And I was going to say something else along that those lines, too, but this will... This will Come back. I think so. Um, had to do with... Uh, yes, that's right. Because you said earlier, which is true, that so because I've been publishing books for 31 years, I've, I've been on the receiving end of quite a lot of interviews, and I'm used to certain um, questions. 
And I think what really moves me about Krista Tippett is that there are many people who will ask you, let's say if you're on the radio, questions that sound like intimacy, but they're the small talk version of intimacy. Right, um, right. Who are your right. friends? Whom do you love? Mm-hmm. And Krista asks, what do you love? Yes. What makes you burn? Yes. What, is, what is your secret passion? Yeah. And um, it's it's never to do with chit chat and gossip yeah. and bold type stuff. And it's always about those questions she senses you haven't come to a resolution to yes. yourself, but that probably you're longing for an occasion to speak to because yeah. not those are not always things you can talk to with your friends, but they're things you think about a lot. You know, what do you care about? Yeah. Is really, I think the question Krista's asking: what, where, what is the heart of your inner life? And and she bypasses all the external life. Yes. She's she's not going <coughs> to ask you where you went to college and what you studied right. and uh, right. what's in your resume. Right, because that's not what matters, right? It's Never <laughs> what matters. Yeah, no. yeah. No, what, it's your the beautiful question you asked early on in our conversation. You know, who are you? What makes you you? Yeah. You know, what what fires you? I like to ask that. I know it's a big question, <laughs> and it and it probably changes too with time, but. I don't know. That's that's what I'm interested in is getting to that more so than yes. all the accolades and the things, yes. you know. And yes, that that's that stuff isn't permanent. It's like what's what's who's what's yes. the soul of you, you know? <laughs> so exactly. So actually, when I was interviewing George Sanders uh, on stage only four months ago, I was introducing him. And I introduced him at great length and talked about all his awards and accomplishments. And as soon as he came onto the stage and sat down. I turned to him and I said, that probably doesn't sound like you at all to you. In other words, when you think of your life, it's struggle and it's difficulty right. and it's day-to-day right. stuff. And it's when you were you know, painting houses, unemployed in Chicago in the snow in 1982. And all that probably sounds like it belongs to another person. And right. I think he clearly he responded to that because that's yeah. what all his, his writing is about. And I think I love your question about what one might learn about interviewing people. So actually just... Four days ago, I was in Portland, and somebody I've known a little, and I respect a huge amount, was asked to interview me. And she's given lots of talks, but she hasn't often interviewed um, people. In fact, she said this is the first time she'd been asked to interview somebody publicly. And so we were emailing, and she was asking me if I had any tips. And I said just what you, Monsi, know and (laughs) did 45 minutes ago in our talk, which was, I said, don't ask about particulars. But ask the most essential things. What makes you sad? What's the happiest yes. moment in your life? Yes. What do you love most? And and I think yeah. most of us are happy to be asked that because mm-hmm. we rarely get the chance to be asked it or to answer it in our yeah, lives. that is um, so true. Who are, who are your great question? Who are you? I mean, I still haven't given a, a, a rich answer to that, but <laughs> I'm okay. thinking still about it tonight. It, right? Yes, yes exactly. <laughs> and I'm so, it's one of the best presents. You've driven 100 miles so that we can talk. And you've left me with this great souvenir Aww. that, you know, tonight and tomorrow morning when I wake up, what, what would be the answer to that? Well, question? you can always let me know the next time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I'll let you know privately, but it yes, won't be yes, part of yes, this official exactly. conversation. Yes. <laughs> exactly. But such exactly. a good question. I mean, what a, the, yeah. what's yeah. one of the great things we can give to anybody, I think? Yeah, and I, I was thinking about that with Krista's interviews, just like you described, how you, you know, had, had the busyness of your mind yes, and yes, thinking yes. and you yes, were yes, outside yes, of your yes, body, yes, yes, and yes. she brought you right back, yes, right? instantly, in, and, in one word, yes. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I... I can imagine that anyone being interviewed by her yes. leaves a conversation feeling like they've just been given a gift. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, yes. I don't know. I felt that even just being in her presence for a time. You yes. Know? Yeah. Yes. I remember <laughs> hearing her answer that great 
wise man, Daniel Kahneman. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking this is probably one of the more difficult interviews she's had because he's a very rigorous, brilliant man. And I think many of the questions he asked, he said, well, no, that's not exactly the case. But I thought his answers were so amazing that probably when he went home that day, he thought, thank heavens for Krista Tippett for taking me places yeah. I haven't been before. In fact, I don't remember it well, but he might even have said that to her at the end of that interview. Thank you for these questions. They're not the ones I usually yeah. hear. Or at least that's what you picked up, even if you didn't say that. That's yes. probably what you felt from him. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. No, it's <laughs> a real privilege. Um, I want to just quickly, or not, we don't have to do quickly, but I <laughs> want to be cautious of time. Um, you know, you have a very, as you mentioned, the, the Dalai Lama earlier, yes. you have a very unique position of having spent a, a, many years knowing yes. the Dalai yes, Lama. Yes, yes. Could you maybe, because I did hear you speaking so beautifully about some lessons you've learned, be, you know, being with him and, and spending time with him. And Can you maybe share one thing that you've really taken away from being in his presence and carry with you? Hmm. I think two things, if I can. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think as the Dalai Lama is a doctor of the mind. I think he's a physician, which is how many people describe the Buddha, mm -hmm. whom he calls his big boss. <laughs> uh, so his one cause in life is to ease suffering. That's the one thing. When he meets you, he has five minutes or 25 minutes with you, and what he wants to do is pull the arrow out of your flesh. Uh, find out what is troubling you and see if he can offer anything to that. Uh, and therefore, like any doctor, he's incredibly pra pragmatic. Uh, and people are sometimes taken aback by that, but that's, that's what medicine is. Um, it's not about giving always inspiring truths or, or fortune cookie wisdom. It's about attending to that problem. So, to, I, so every year I travel around all of Japan with him, and he kindly allows me and my wife to sit in on all his private meetings, but we also attend, of course, all his public events. And nearly always, at the end of one of his addresses, uh, usually a woman will stand up in Japan and ask this very heartfelt question and say, what, what do you do if you really want to reverse climate change and bring compassion to the world and make this a better place mm -hmm. overnight? And he'll look at her very kindly and say, wrong dream. Wow, yes. He said, and then he'll say, you have to be really realistic and rigorous in your dreams. If you want to change yourself and change some of the people around you, that's possible. If you want to change the world overnight, it'll never happen. And that's really a recipe for disappointment. I remember once there was, uh, we were in uh, Okinawa, and there was a, a man clearly from North America in the front row, and he put his hand up and he said, what do you do if you really love a culture and you want to be part of it and you feel it's your home, but somehow um, you just can't get into it. It doesn't accept you. It doesn't understand you for who you are. And again, the Dalai Lama looked at him with all the warmth and love of, a, of an uncle. And he said, frankly, you should go back to Canada. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe not what that person expected, but right. it was the doctor's answer. That, right. was, that was where the end of his suffering would lie. So I love that practicality he has. Yeah. And I think the second thing, of course, one, one everybody sees and loves about the Dalai Lama is that we visit him in his hotel room every morning at 8.30, and then we come into the elevator to go down to his first event of the day. And there are usually 80, 100, 200 people uh, waiting in the lobby. The word has got round that the Dalai Lama is staying there. And so as soon as he gets out of the elevator, large group of people, some carrying white scarves to present to him, some wanting selfies, some 
have a question, some want his blessing, all kinds of things, and all crowding in on him. And a little child will come and extend um, a, a, a ceremonial scarf to the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama brings all his attention to that six-year-old girl mm -hmm. and listens to her as if she were the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And the next day, although nobody there is witness to it, except the handful of us who are traveling with him, he will, in a big auditorium in Tokyo, talk about his interaction with the little girl and what she taught him. And so to bring himself with that degree of humility and attentiveness to everybody, um, everybody he meets. And of course, he's meeting literally a thousand people every day, yeah. each with her own demands and questions and needs. And he's bringing, just as a doctor would or should, bringing himself wholeheartedly to yeah. everyone. And I think... It's startling to me when we go into an arena and there'll be 8,000 people there. He's got what I call a radar for compassion. And when we go into this crowded space, he will see somebody's in a wheelchair over there. Mm. Or he will sense somebody is suffering and he'll wow. give himself over to them. And then in this huge crowd, he'll see someone in the sixth row and say, I saw you last in Lhasa, 1957. Wow. Yes. That's incredible. Because he's so, paying so much attention. So attentive. He's so attuned, yeah. So attuned. And, and, and that memory, too. When I'm talking to him, he'll sometimes say, oh, the last time I saw your father, he was wearing a yellow shirt. Wow. And I'll remember the last time he saw my father was 33 years ago. And he's <gasps> met a 1,000 people every one of those 10,000 days. That is so beautiful. Uh, and I've, I nev I've always wondered, and I'll never know, how much that's training, how much that's who he was when he was born, how much that's what comes with being a Dalai Lama, who knows? Uh, and it doesn't matter, but any of us can gain from that degree of attentiveness, because memory is just a function of attention. Yes, yes, um, So he's taking everything in, in his busy life. Um, yeah, That's so. beautiful, and I love the answer he gave to that man about the place. Of, yes. It's, it's, to me, that sort of um, lands in the thought of, not chasing something that isn't meant for you because that's yes. to me where suffering is right it's exactly, trying, trying, trying to make something happen exactly. it's not meant and the be. core of buddhism is there's a gap between what you want and the way things are right. and that wanting is getting leading us in the wrong direction and throwing our arms around what is is yes. what we have to do embracing reality that is your friend that's the partner you have to work with find your beauty your wonder your innocence your delight in reality rather than the never never land yes. which is always going to leave you grasping absolutely at, at something you can't get so yes you perfectly said it that is that is his teaching but he brings it in such a pragmatic way to most of us who are not buddhists right um, right because it's a universal human truth yes. i think and that's that's why he always centers himself yeah um, if somebody comes and tries to heckle him again i always remember one moment when a woman was trying to heckle him and his bodyguards were ready to um whisk her away and he said no bring her to me and he just stood and held her face in his hands and looked deep into her eyes and kind of, I think, tried to say to her, I'm, I'm your friend, I'm not your enemy, I, we have more in common than apart, you, don't worry, you don't have to be so, um, so brought up. You know, it's funny you say that because I heard you tell that beautiful story and I think it was another podcast interview, maybe the one with Chris. I think maybe that was it. Oh, oh <laughs> ah, Anyways. Ah. You've really done your research, yes. <laughs> but I was, um, I took that. Um, into my heart because uh, a couple days ago after I listened to that I was crossing the street and you know I had the light and everything like that yeah. and this man was um, this older man was um, uh, coming with his car and he just started screaming at me and uh, just saying the meanest things yes. about how stupid I was and all these really? things and I my instinct was almost uh, not my instinct my, my mind was sort of telling me like oh I should 
trying to correct him and say, well, I yes. have the light, you know? Yes, and, yes. But I just didn't. I just oh, paused beautiful. and I thought, I'm not, he's already suffering enough if he's has this much anger in him. Yes. I don't need to add to that, you oh, know? Oh, I love that. So I love that. I and took I, that from I love, <laughs> most of all, the fact you instantly implemented in your daily life this practical instruction of the Dalai Lama. Yeah. I mean, it's all very fresh to me because as it happens, I wrote a piece about him a couple of months ago and the magazine just arrived last night. So I was reading that piece today because sometimes I'll read things I've written many months ago and it's like reading something written by a stranger. Right. Um, and it was about exactly that. And I remember, so that I remember meeting a young man who, after listening to the Dalai Lama's talk, said he just went and introduced himself to his neighbours. Maybe it won't do much good with 83% of the neighbours, but the other 17%, maybe it would, and there's nothing lost. And the Dalai Lama always says, I was reminding my wife about it a few days ago, how he tries to smile to people, at smile at people when uh, he sees them. And he says he knows that a lot of people will think, oh, he's crazy. Or some women will feel uh, unsettled by this. Who is this guy who's just smiling at me? And many of them will take it the wrong way. Or they'll say, what's he after? What's his desire? But all he can do is take care of the sincerity and purity of his intent. Yes. And then yes. it's up to others. So, that is right. Uh, and yes. of course, that's in some ways the story of his life. He's been extending the hand towards the Chinese government for 60 years. So far, they still call him a devil and an evil spirit, and it's only brought more hatred from their side. But it doesn't matter. All he right. can do is, is extend the hand and, yes. and, 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 and smile. And, um, and as you were saying, I mean, it, it, as you, instead of correcting or being angry with that person, smile sweetly, yeah. he might get more angry. It doesn't matter. Right. You've done right. your bit. Exactly. You can't control his that's, response. That's but, Exactly right. And that's something I've been learning over the years, you know, it's, yes. it's a important lesson. And I think, I always think that if I can do even the smallest thing to just make somebody else's day a little bit better, mm. why would I not, you know? Oh, and how lovely. I, I just know I'm somebody who's just hypersensitive. So yeah. I pick up energy so easily. Oh, really? Oh, yes. So, you know, when I, if I'm having a, 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 a sort of a day where I'm a little bit sad or, yeah. you know, and I, I, like this happened not that long ago. I don't know. It just came to mind. I was having a, a bad day and I couldn't even tell you why. You know, it was just a day mm. where I felt sad. And I was um, walking in the supermarket and I was like, I'm going to buy a, like that really expensive chocolate because yes. I was um, oh, like, I I'm going to treat myself. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, chocolate, hooray. <laughs> so I went to go buy it and um, the person at the register, he, I saw him pushing in some extra buttons and he said, it'll just be 20 cents. And I said, but, but why? And he goes, just because. And it's like he sensed that I was having a bad day. <laughs> and it, it totally turned my whole day around. Oh, that's lovely. It's a silly little example. It's but it's silly. No, <laughs> But it's these great. things that I just, I can see how much that can affect my mood and my yes. day and my feelings. And I just think, and I, I was at the, a lot of coffee shop themes and, and food themes, but I was at um, a matcha shop. You mm -hmm. know, I love matcha. And mm. I was... Uh, I was um, just ordering matcha, and the lady, I don't know, I think because I just asked her how her day was or something simple like that. She said, you're just bright in my whole day. And yes. I don't know what I did, but I just think that if you can just, you know, bring some 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 sun to people's lives and sunshine oh, and warmth. beautiful, beautiful. I mean, tiny, why would we not, things, right? Yes. <laughs> just sincerely asking how her day yes, was. Yes, exactly. No, oh, I love that. And actually, as you were talking, I was remembering two more things with the Dalai Lama. I, I went to see him. He was in Newport Beach, California, the day after he received the Nobel Prize yeah. uh, in 1989. And I went to see him that morning. And you know, all these congratulatory telegrams are flooding in. The whole world was so excited. Now Tibet's problems are behind it. 
And, uh, and he took me into this little room and we began speaking. And the first thing he said was, I really wonder if I've done enough. Mm. The, what seemed in the public eye to be the greatest triumph of, of his life, but he's very far-sighted and realistic and he knows that things are not going to change overnight. Yeah. But that was the first thing he said. And then he said, all I can do is try every day really hard, my best, and then maybe one other person will do that and yes, another, and yes. incrementally yeah. maybe something really significant will happen. And he, he ended that um, talk with me by, we're going to the door, and he suddenly said, oh, I forgot something, and he went back and he turned off the light. And he said, just that little gesture of turning off the light, if more and more of us remember to do it, more and more times a day, that's how the planet got saved. Not through high Some philosophy grand, or yes, whatever, yes. it's just that tiny Absolutely. everyday thing. And the other thing I remember, very touchingly, seven years after that Nobel Prize, I was uh, spending many days with him in his home in Dharamsala, and I can't remember in one context, uh, but I, was, I guess I was talking about transformation, his theme. And he suddenly remembered this one moment when he was in Soweto, in South Africa, and this was a long time ago, probably during apartheid times, and he asked to meet a regular family. And he told me how he went into this regular family, and they talked, and he met a man who felt really powerless. And he said, mm. you know, this is an apartheid system. I'm, I have the wrong color skin. I have no opportunities. And I feel there's nothing I can do. And the Dalai Lama said, no, you're, you're a human. We all have more, much more power than we know. We can do many, many things. None of us is, is in that situation. And as he recounted this, the Dalai Lama said to me, he really felt that that man gained some confidence mm. in, in that conversation. And then the Dalai Lama looked over me, and it's very touching, and he said, I really felt that day I achieved something. Oh, so for the Dalai Lama's person, point right? of view, yes. just changing one person's mi mind, it, that was his biggest achievement. I think that's so important for people to hear, because it, you don't have to be some famous or big figure to be able to have this grand impact. Yes. For me, if yes. I... You know, to know that I... I know this is going to sound maybe silly, but I had this ex-boyfriend years and years ago who was in the army, and mm. he had to be in Iraq for a year. Oh, my goodness. Yes, and I remember him telling me that, you know, thinking about coming home to me is what kept him alive out there. Yeah. And even though yes. that wasn't really me, it was more just like his yes. feeling. I just, that to me is so special, and it made me so happy to know that I was able to give him some peace, you know, oh, um, yes, during this. yes, So I just, it's something like oh, that. Oh, yes. Just, um, it, you just have to touch one person's life, and that's yes. already so huge. Yes, you know? yes. I was just reading. I was in Alaska last year, and I met a gentleman who'd served, I think, three tours of duty in Iraq. And, of course, all the stuff he's carrying in his head, very haunted still. Yes. And he just sent me a manuscript he'd written, and it, a lot of it was about his thoughts of his girlfriend, of course. Yes. And, um, and you know, it didn't work out so well in that instance. And I was thinking that responsibility on the girlfriend back here, that's but true. also that yeah. opportunity that yeah. that's what's keeping somebody oh, in that yeah. impossible situation going. So yes, exactly, you don't, have to, you don't have to be the Dalai Lama to help somebody. And yeah. also I was so touched that for the Dalai, from the Dalai Lama's point of view, winning the Congressional Gold Medal, winning the Nobel Prize, none of that's material. Yes. He helped one guy one day and that's wow, it. that's something. It's for, he, he, and he's so genuine. I mean, everyone knows the Dalai Lama has no pretenses. He's just uh, he's as open as, as he was when he was a little boy, probably. And, and you've um, known him since you were a teenager. I've known him right? since I was a teenager and since he was in his 30s. Yes, 1974 wow. is when I first visited his house in, in, um, in Dharamsala. So just, you, I just sense as he, as he was saying that, his genuine 
delight and gratitude that he could help one person. Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah. And I, he's, I mean, we, you and I, when we think of the Dalai Lama, we think, oh, there he's inspiring 20,000 people every day. But from his point of view, it's the one-on-one. On one yeah, yeah. So I want to do two more things. One is ask you one more question. Yes. And then if we have time, let me make sure we're not. Yes. Okay, we're, we're okay. Yes, make sure we wrap five. it up. Yes, thank you. Yes, 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 thank you. Good. Phew. I feel better now that yes, I'm Yes, we've got an early start, which is good. Thanks to you getting oh, here so early. Okay, wonderful. Okay. Um, so I want to ask you about... You your you lost everything in a fire. Yes. And was it 1990? 1990. Yes. yes. So in Santa Barbara, as yes. a matter of fact, right? Yes. And um, I didn't have quite that extreme an example, but I did lose like all of my material things in a flood years ago. Oh, well, that's the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, oh. I had. I mean, there's some things that were left over, but I, but all my, you know, like a lot of my baby pictures oh. and my like journals from yes. when I was younger. And, yeah. And I remember like when I was in it, and I was it was my senior year of college because I was um, living for a semester at home, mm. and it was at my my parent, my mom and oh. stepdad's house. Um, but I remember. Like at that time, it felt so big and tragic, but something in that has really changed me inside. I think for the better, in that mm. I am so I've let go of materialism. You know, mm. I don't hold so much value on things anymore, yes. and I almost feel like it was a blessing that it happened to me yes. because it, it's made me. I felt like I was a little bit too attached to things, you know, yes. and thinking like oh, like holding this journal so dear and yes. holding this, you know, and and now I I don't anymore. I sort of. Um, live with the memories and the feelings and you know that's that's where I live and not so much with the things and I mm. almost have a detachment from things now mm. and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience and losing all your things and if how that impacted you and my guess is perhaps because you moved around so much you already had sort of had this innate resilience that I don't know if that's the truth but you know it makes me think that maybe that was um, made it maybe a little softer for you to, to have lost everything? I don't know, but... <laughs> maybe, I mean, maybe what really made it softer was three years before that, as we were saying, I had moved to Japan with a view to living more simply in a monastery. Right. So oh be my careful gosh. what like you wish for. right? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. So I couldn't complain when suddenly life... You know, I failed to live in the monastery, but life gave me what I wanted, the chance to live with much, much less less clutter. It's amazing you asked me about that because I was talking on the phone to my wife in Japan about two hours ago about that because just yesterday, as I was in Seattle airport flying back to Santa Barbara, the photographer who took a picture of me in the rubble of that house sent me all the photos he'd taken. It's the first time since that day, 28 years ago, that I saw, the, saw that picture. So the last 24 hours I've been seeing me 28 years ago Clutching the manuscript that was the only thing I saved wow. in this absolute devastation. And that poor photographer has been struggling with cancer recently. And he sent, I haven't talked to him for 28 years, but he sent me this lovely email yesterday about how, on the one hand, he's lucky, he's still around, he's got good kids, he's still biking and running. On the other hand, he's got this very rare thing that's causing him great pain. And I guess as he's sifting through his life, he came upon these pictures mm -hmm. and so sweetly sent them uh, to me. But... Um, and you're, you're absolutely right. As, as you were talking, I was remembering how when I wrote the book about the Dalai Lama, I found out that when the minute he came into exile in India, leaving behind his home country, Tibet, leaving behind his friends, his dog, everything, mm -hmm. coming into exile as he's remained for 60 years now, his first sentence to his younger brother was, now we are free. Instead, instead of complaining, yes. he lost his home, he's yes. lost his seeming destiny, he's lost his country, 
he's looking to an opportunity. Now we can do things we never could have done if yeah. we were home. Yeah. And I think I cite that because that's his fundamental teaching, which is what you were sharing in Soweto to that gentleman. We have, the mind is where so much of, that's where our power lies. Mm -hmm. and, and the Buddha said, every one of us has exactly the same powers as the Buddha to approach every circumstance as an opportunity or a loss. Yes. It's what the Stoics said, it's what all the great, it's not unique to any tradition that we're defined not by circumstances, but what we do with the circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember after that fire, which at the time was the worst fire in Californian history, it wiped out 550 houses. Some people, I think, devastated for life. Others thought, well, of course this is a shock, it's a loss, there are things I'm always going to miss, but maybe it will allow me to do things I couldn't have done otherwise. So in my case, just as you said, I quickly found Everything I really cherished, which were my photos, uh, my keepsakes, my notes, especially my next yeah. three books, I'd never oh. get those back. They were all gone. I mean, in that some, is hard. In some ways, yeah. my writing career, I think I stopped really wanting to be a writer then wow, and there. Really? Um, yes. I, before that, I, I, you know, I had my next three books mapped out. And I was a lot of energy and I was pretty young. To start my, just out of my 20s, I was going to do all these things to be a writer. It kind of uh, liberated me from that. And everything I could replace, which were books and clothes and furniture, I didn't really need. So mm -hmm. when it came to replacing things, thanks to the insurance right. supplement, I realized I didn't need 90% of the right. things. When it came to writing, I knew what I was possessed by, but I didn't have my notes. So I actually wrote fiction, which I might never have been bold enough to do otherwise. Uh, and it also allowed me to live, move to Japan much more easily because I literally had nothing um, yes. in my life in California anymore. I think a great thing about that is, you know, suffering is the thing that binds us all together. And you and I are sitting in this privileged Southern Californian town, and the majority of our neighbors on the planet are going through that every day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're losing their that, houses being, with, yes, yes through, through warfare and and an earthquake and fire and you name it. That's something my mother, as you who you just met, she yes. always made sure we were very aware of that growing up. Yes. You know, so that we realized our privilege, you know. Because, so, yeah. yes. And, and I'd say 99% of the people on the planet would give anything to be who I was and where I was the day after the fire in this affluent town, yes. never having known warfare, never having known poverty or hunger, with an insurance policy that's allowing me to build a new house, with options and education allowing me to do many things, yeah. still so much luckier than uh, anybody else. And um, it's interesting, we're sitting in this room right here. Um, it's remarkable. This has never happened before. But um, So I was stuck in the middle of the fire for yeah. three hours because it started up in the mountains. Our house was the first one um, to be visited by it. And, I, and uh, I was only saved by a good Samaritan who'd driven up with a water truck to try and help people and then got stuck himself. And he saved us by, with his hose from the water truck. So we were stuck up there for three hours and this fire was so intense that so we could hear the wearing helicopters, but they couldn't see us, we couldn't see them. And it was too intense even for the fire trucks to get up, so we stuck there. And finally, after two and a quarter hours, a fire truck came up and led us down to a safer place, but we still couldn't escape. And from that safe place, it was right under my house, so I watched the fire systematically take apart one room, you know, wipe out my Oof. mother's bedroom, wipe out our library, wipe out my bedroom, wipe out everything. So I was witness to all that. And finally, after three hours, I drove down through this extraordinary scene of you know, cars blazing and the hills orange with rivulets of fire. And I came to this very 
room in which we're sitting. Really? So, yes. That's why I say it's never wow. happened before. I've never talked about the fire in this room. Wow. So I came to this office, which luckily I had access to, and I was sleeping on the floor in the oh. next room for the next many, 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 many months while we were waiting to put yes. our lives together again. But the first thing I did, I came to this very room, and I had a creaky little laptop, and things were... Communication was pretty primitive in 1990 by today's standards, but I had a modem, and I thought, well, I'm a writer. I'm not powerless. Yes. Life has spoken to me. I can have my say back. And I, the one thing I can do now is write about this event, because I've just had um, a fancied view on history, the biggest fire in California yeah. at that time. And so I wrote a piece then and there before I went to sleep at about 11 p.m. that evening uh, for Time Magazine, because I was writing a lot for Time Magazine yeah. then. And I was thinking about it this morning, actually, as I was um, looking at those photos again. Uncanny that you mention it. Uh, but I was thinking I ended that piece with um, a Japanese poem. And it's a famous poem, and it reads, My house burns down. Now I can see more clearly the rising moon. Mm. In other words, we're stripped of our hearse, our foundations, everything we took for granted. Maybe there's an opportunity mm. there. Maybe there's a liberation. Maybe we can see what's important there. Maybe we can see everything that the clutter was keeping us away from before. And so uh, some later, last year or two years ago, somebody was saying, well, after the fire, did you really quickly come to an acceptance. It probably wasn't so quick, right. but the night of the fire, I could already see. Wow. And the one thing I saved was my manuscript about Japan that was full of poems about burning houses. That's why I knew this one so quickly, because I'd spent the previous three years putting together this manuscript about Japanese and their gift for dealing with impermanence. For 1,400 yeah. years, yeah. they've been living in wooden houses. In the 20th century, in Tokyo, it was assumed a house would only last for three years before a fire would take it down. That degree of impermanence. Wow. So, um, and I'd been studying at the feet of these masters of, um, of frailty. It was already what? sort of in you, so it was kind of... Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. I'd been, life had been wow. preparing me. Wow. I sort of prepared by moving to a monastery and prepared even more by mm -hmm. reading in Japan. And it was remarkable that I had the shoulder bag when, when I fled the burning house and the one thing on... The sh um, the sh in the shoulder bag was this manuscript that I was basically proofreading. It was, it was complete, but um, I was doing the final touches. And of course, in Buddhism, all life is meant to be a burning house. That's right. So, That's right. Um, you know, none of these things are yes. coincidental. And so when I wrote a book about that event, the first chapter <coughs> was called The Burning House, and the last mm -hmm. chapter was called The Alien Home, which is, I live in Japan on a tourist visa, yeah. but as you and I were saying, it feels like home. So it's that evolution from house to home, and maybe losing your house yeah. makes you think what is really home. Yes. And what is really home is one's loved ones, one's favorite song, one's the book one keeps returning to. And the that's memories, all, still there. all the things. Yes, the memories, that's right, are still there. Yeah, it's not a house. It's not that's a right. physical house. That's right, yeah. exactly. And all that inner stuff is yeah. was with me the day after the fire. Yeah, Mocking absolutely. Me, perhaps. So. Oh, so beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that. Oh, thank you for asking at the perfect moment. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the crazy. day I saw the photos from the fire for the first time wow. in 28 years. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, lastly, yes. um, what I always like to do, sort of end the podcast, is asking, um, I'll ask you some of your, I, I hesitate to say, to say favorites, but I say favorites, yes. but really some things that are meaningful to you. So I'll say the thing and then you can tell me what comes to okay, mind. Okay, and I'll do it. I'll do it quickly. So yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. So how about a favorite book? 
The Quiet American comes to mind by Graham Greene. Great. That was, that was very instantaneous. Yes. You knew that. <laughs> I, could have, I could have said Waldem, but okay. somebody asked me that question today. Actually. Oh, really? So, oh, so yes. Two, same question. In, in a, That's all right. Okay. Yeah. So how about a favorite, well, this is a big one for you, but how about a favorite place? Most interesting place I visited, Iran. Most moving place, Japan. Most, in, uh, most intoxicating, Cuba. And the place closest to my heart is Japan. Mm. Great. How about a favorite album or song? Ooh, I was my instinct was going to say "Late for the Sky" from 1974, Jackson Brown. Though um, for song, it would be "If It Be Your Will" by Leonard Cohen. Ah, uh, yes. Well, yes, from his monastery, in fact. Beautiful. Um, and how about lastly? How about a favorite memory? Hmm. Well, of course, the one that we talked about, that first taste of Japan, mm -hmm. as you said, it's 36 years ago and I can taste it as if it were yesterday. Really? I can still see that October sky and those kids on the lawn. Wow. And pretty much remember how I felt. So, I mean, that was really life-changing because there I was working in Time magazine, four blocks from Times Square, had this you know, interesting-seeming journalist job and that woke me up. Yeah. And I thought, there's something else there and... and if you don't attend to it, you'll wake up and you'll be 60 years old and you'll think, actually, what have I done with my life? Yeah. And I'm, I'm a great believer in leaving things not when you're miserable, but when you're happy. I yes. was very happy in New York City, yes. but it was a kind of happiness I couldn't tell how deep it went. And I thought, you know, this Japan is a whole different avenue. It's opening the door on another world. And I owe it to myself to explore that. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I had this very similar feeling. I was living in New York City working mm. for um, Sony Music. Oh my gosh. And a very so glamorous yes. job. Yes. And I, lo I actually loved it. I loved yes. my managers and everything. But something was strongly pulling me to San Francisco. And I just, oh. I... I left my job without having another job and just I just oh, followed my instinct there yes. and, and it led me to so many beautiful things. Oh, those are the only <laughs> yeah. decisions that work out well. Yes. You don't know where you're going yes. and you're just following a, a seemingly irrational, clearly you're the one with intuition, you have a <laughs> gift of following your intuitions, yeah. finding what they are and following them. It's really inspiring. So Sony is Leonard Cohen's. Um, that's right. Yes. Recording label. If that's yes, the word. yes. Yes. So, yes. 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 I was, yes. I was often dealing with them when I was writing yes. liner notes for him. For him. I feel I so remember. lucky because you know um, I worked for for them, but I, you know, it's a massive company. But yes. and I was working in global marketing, so I got to actually ah, work interact with fantastic. all the different countries and the representatives oh, from there. So it was in a lot of ways my dream job. Yes. You know, but yes. just like you, it was something that was telling me there's something bigger that I needed to chase yes. or go towards, you know? Yes, and one of the things you went towards was books, which is the yes. soul, which yes. is the intimacy yes. and depth that we've been absolutely. talking about. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. What a oh, thrill. What a beautiful conversation, Pico. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you for coming 100 miles each way so that we could talk uh, oh, on Memorial it was, Day. It was a, it. a treasured conversation, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Musings with Monse. Artists and Their Honest Stories is audio produced by the amazing Aaron Mooring, and the beautiful theme music you hear is by Heather Maloney. 